Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. The race is on, and Mercedes has revealed a new W13, the car it hopes will allow it to add to its unprecedented run of 15 out of 16 World Championship wins over the past eight years. But is it up to its usual standards, and is Lewis Hamilton raring to go after his time away following Abu Dhabi? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, Mark, you've seen the car, heard from Toto Wolff and the drivers. So what's your general feeling on where Mercedes is at? Uh, cautious optimism, as you'd expect, you know, because they, they make the point, as everybody's made, that they're very happy with what they've seen in simulation, but until they get it on the track, they don't know how that correlates. But um, it, yeah, yet another time, we've seen nine cars now, and that's nine very different takes on especially around the um the, the, the side part and engine cover so it's uh, it's quite an elegant looking thing long and narrow um the side pods seem to have this quite a narrow layout but there seems to be again um as we saw on the aston and uh, williams it does seem to be quite a lot of um area needed inside of there for uh, radiators and cooling um, perhaps more so than on the um, Ferrari and on the Alfa Tauri with the Honda engine. Gary, you've taken a close look at the Mercedes. We talked on the Ferrari podcast about the the logic and the concept of that car being a little bit puzzling, but the Mercedes does seem to be at the opposite end of the scale in that everything kind of looks roughly as you'd expect. Yeah, I think it is. I think if you if you look at it, it's a logical development of the philosophy they've had in their cars over the last couple of years. You know, because the regulations have changed um, in a lot of areas, and it's obviously a lot more prescriptive, you've obviously got to make the car comply with the regulations, but that doesn't mean you change your sort of out-and-out philosophy. Um, and that's really what I was saying about the Ferrari in my book. It's sort of, it's it's quite different in how they've gone about their, uh, how would you say, their, their the body flow, I suppose you might call it, over the whole, over the whole car. Um, and why should it be quite different? Because it's really... Um, only the underfloor that's, that's that's really dramatically changed as far as what you can produce from it. Obviously, the front wing, the rear wing, it's all changed. But in general, those things were always there. They might get more downforce, they might get less downforce, but they're still there in exactly the same places as they were before. The underfloor is the big change and getting the flow to the underfloor. And I think on the Mercedes, you know, from the front of the car, you can sort of see that. it's um, It doesn't have a highly loaded inboard end on the front wing. Um, they have, you know, fairly shallow... Uh, flap angles where it joins the nose so that area is where they're feeding the leading, the leading edge of the underfloor and they, and they want to get 
decent quality, consistent airflow through there. So you can see their the front flap doesn't change angle in that area. That area is fixed. So the flow through there to the underfloor will be consistent, even though you put on more front angle front wing angle, it's a bit further out. So yeah, you know, this car, although I think they missed a couple of tricks, um, which is dodgy for me to say, um, against Mercedes, but never mind. Um, I think they missed a couple of tricks. I think this this car has got a better front-to-back philosophy, I suppose you might call it, than the Ferrari. Well, I've got to pick up on the missed tricks. So what are the missed tricks, do you think, on this car before we get on to the more positive bits? Again, you know, it's 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 trying to buy into what others have done because that's all we can see at the moment. We haven't got our own wind tunnel and our own wind tunnel model to go off and exploit this sort of stuff. But as you can see by the, by the inboard end of the front wing on the Mercedes, for example, they're trying to get flow through there and get it underneath the nose because that's where the leading edge of the underfloor is. Um, so the, the slot gap that we've seen on the front wing on quite a few of the cars, you know, early on the, the, the um, Aston Martin had it and then the McLaren had it, that slot gap for that front flap and the way they mount the front wing um, will be giving them that little bit of additional flow in through that uh, underneath the front of the car, underneath the front of the nose, and that all helps the, the flow on the underside of the nose stay attached. Um, so you can be a little bit more aggressive with the step, the, the way the nose sweeps upwards. Um, so that would be my first thing to say. If I was Mercedes, I'd be going off, you know, researching how I could, you know, come up with a solution for that, for that problem. You know, there isn't a massive difference in any of these things. As I say, if, if you had two cars identical and, um, you had one with a slot gap and one without it, and you'd actually, you know, made the rest of the car work with that extra flow from the slot gap you would be very, very happy, very, very lucky to find a tenth of a second. So it's not as though it's a make or break. It's just a little bit, and you have to add all these little bits of the jigsaw up. It takes all the bits before you can build the whole jigsaw. Um, and that's one area for me that I think they could uh, have done a little bit more on. And I'm not quite sure on the side pods, again, the um, the, the corrugated louvers that they have on the floor, um, this had started the season last year with a similar sort of concept. I'm not quite sure that that does as much as being able to address it with a, a small flap section above the floor. Now, I think Sauber, I think it's Sauber or, or uh, Alfa Romeo, have got the, um, the better solution on the floor um, as far as, well, Sauber are Alfa Romeo, actually, so what am I talking about? Yeah, I think the um, the Alfa Romeo has a better solution on the top of the floor um, for pulling that airflow out of the front corner of the floor because there's the, the, the airflow outside of a certain point uh, on that floor is disturbed quite dramatically by the wake um, from the front tyre. And that's not good for the, to allow the diffuser to be pulling on that flow. So your, your splitters that are in the floor there and the outside splitter that we see sort of replacing the barge board, that's, those, those parts are all about trying to not let that get into the main diffuser flow and to make sure you can exit it somehow. So you're trying to whisk that flow and pull it out of the side pod as early as possible, allowing then the diffuser to work on the more central flow that's cleaner and tidier. And that cleaner and tidier flow comes from the, the front wing not being heavily loaded inboard and by the slot gap on the on the main plane of the front wing getting more airflow to it. So... It's all a, a little bit of a circle, going around and around in a circle to sort of get there. And um, there are there are better details than some of the stuff on the Mercedes on some of the other cars. 
but not huge stuff. It's all small stuff. So it'll be interesting to see who heads what way as soon as we see the cars running. Yeah, and we should say the Mercedes has been running today. George Russell was the first to go out in it. Lewis Hamilton uh, took over, so it was running at, at Silverstone. But Mark, what did you make of that sort of front entry? We can see some good details in terms of the the kind of veins they've got in front of the Venturi and channeling the airflow around the side pod. It's probably the clearest look we've got at that. But certainly you look at the combination of the front wing and that, and we're talking about the actual car here, that there were renders issued as well, but they were a much earlier version. So we sort of forget the renders and looking at the car that was involved in the launch, which was actually the car that was being shaken down. So what, what did you make of that? It did seem just logical, didn't it? Yeah, and it all seems to flow nicely. One of the details in the front, that it, it, it appears... I mean, you needed you need to enhance the photo to really to see it, but it looks like the inlet for the um, the for the tunnel for the Venturi tunnel is quite high and quite small. And um, Garrick will tell us more about the implications of that. And the other thing, um, noticing just in the general proportions of the car when you look at it compared to the others, certainly compared to the Ferrari, it's quite stark. Is how far back behind the cockpit the airbox and all that plumbing starts and it does look a bit like the Aston that the Mercedes engine is, is mounted further back so I suppose they've got a shorter gearbox and they've mounted the engine further back I I, I guess that they're trying to um, increase the, the the space in between the front axle and the beginning of the side pods but um, yeah Gary could probably tell us more about that but they're, 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 in visually when you're looking at there were two very distinctive things I, I spotted yeah, if we, if we go into the, the leading edge of the underfloor, um, you know, in the in the my sort of uh, analysis that you should see soon, um, the the inboard end of the of the the underfloor, the, the the main the inside two tunnels, I suppose you might call them, it's it's quite a lot higher the inlet there, and as I say, that's the airflow that you're trying to to pull into the diffuser area and allow the diffuser to pull that air through underneath the floor, obviously speed it up and fill up the void of the diffuser, or the volume of the diffuser. And, and generate the downforce out of it. But the other bits where, they, where the leading edge of the floor is a bit lower is a, the stuff I'm saying you want to try and, you know, try and waste because that is, that is flow that's been beaten around quite a lot by the front tyre, um, trying, to, trying to penetrate through that flow. So it's, it's dispersed around the front tyre. It gets turbulence because of the wake behind the front tyre. And as I say, if that goes underneath the floor, it's, it's efficiency, it's energy has gone. So you want to try and get good high energy air into the area where you're trying to work, make a diffuser work on it. So it's a it's a bit of a you know a bit of a sort of chicken and egg situation because you if you have a big leading edge diffuser uh, underfloor, then obviously you're taking in some of that that um, turbulent airflow and that has lost its energy. So you take the massive flow and the energy that's left in all of that will will sort of even out by the time you get to the throat of the diffuser and you end up with a, a less performing underfloor than than you want. Um, the regulations, the way they're written, as far as I know, there's a reference point where all the stuff that's on the chassis um, has to be, uh, you know, it's, it's X, Y, Z coordinates. So there's a reference point on the chassis where all the front wing, everything like that has to go relative to the chassis, side pods and everything. But then the front and rear axle can be, they've got a reference point where they need to be, but it's, a, it's quite a variation on it. So you can have the... You can have the front wing overhanging the front wheels more, um, for example. And in the past, we couldn't do that. The, the, front, the front wing was always around about the reference to the centre of the front wheel. So you'll see in these cars, there's a bigger gap between the back of the end plate to the front, to the front wheel on some than on the others. Um, 
and that's obviously lets you get more airflow out through that point and various things. But the the wheelbase is done maximum wheelbase of three point six meters from front to back. So what you're saying there, Mark, about the engine and the where the engine is relative to the chassis and stuff, all that stuff can can move back and forward a little bit um, within the sort of regulation tolerance. Uh, Quite hard to sort of put it to put it all down on paper until you actually, as I say, read the regulations in detail and and actually start to draw the car out, see what bits you can move around and how much you can move them around by. But I think that's where why it would end up with the airbox being sort of relative to the cockpit opening, being that little bit different. And coming back to the the inlets for the Venturi tunnels, if you have a look on the race.com website, don't forget the hyphen, there's a, a good illustration that highlights the various bits of that and Gary explains it very well. So if you want to visualise that a little bit more, uh, head to the website. And we should briefly, Gary, touch on the suspension because that's been a talking point. Mercedes, nothing particularly surprising. Push rod front, pull rod rear? Yeah, nothing nothing dramatically uh, different. Um you can see, if you look at the top front wishbone track rod, you can see a sort of change of section in the middle of the, uh, the leading edge of the top the top leg of the wishbone. And, and that's really to accommodate the fact that the, the flow coming off the wing, front wing uh, uh, trailing edge is going to be quite different in the highly loaded section of it relative to the inboard end or even the outboard end. So, you know, the suspension always gets matched up to that flow to try to... Um, catch that wake that's coming off the front wing and and pull it back down more in line with what the, the next part of the car coming along, which is the leading edge of the underfloor or the radiator inlet or the side pod, um, try and pull that flow back down to more in line with what this, those next parts want to see. Um, you want to do that, but you don't want to overpower the flow because that'll affect the front wing performance. So it's a sort of, again, you want to get the, the airflow to, to turn as much as possible where you're trying to load the front wing up and then catch that flow far enough back that it's not affecting the front wing, but near enough as quickly as possible so you can do more to it to try to pull the flow back down again. It's a little bit of a tricky area. And it, again, it's like all these things, like a slot gap underneath the nose. It's it's not a big deal, but all the bits all add up. So you have to do them, you know, you have to do them from front to back. And then you end up with an end result that you say, okay, that, that package is what I've you know what I've created. We should briefly touch on the power unit package as well. Mark, obviously you talked about the location of it. Obviously we haven't seen it. We know a few little bits about what they've said about it. Hill Thomas, the boss of Mercedes AMG HPP, said that they've, they've they've tried to push the limits with how they package it. They gave themselves even longer than usual to, to work on this, given the imminent engine freeze and the need to adapt to the E10. So do we have much of a feel for what's going on there? It's a bit of a blank slate for us from the outside. Yeah, I mean, it's the same basic engine. They haven't done um, a complete... Um, overhaul like um ferrari and uh, alpine have done but it's um he was Hugh thomas is saying that the the usage is quite different uh this year just in, because of the, the the traits of the car are different you know and um one of the big things especially in the um the, the move to uh the e10 fuel is that um relatively it was relatively straightforward to get the, the twenty horsepower or whatever you you lose when you just do that and don't make any other changes. But getting the response, getting the throttle response, and is is was, was a lot more challenging. Um, but also the where the where the cars, um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have maximum throttle at different points. It, it it is quite globally on all the circuits of the calendar it's quite a different usage apparently a significantly different usage and they've had to optimize it 
around both that and the, the traits, the new traits that they've got because of the introduction of the E10. Yeah, I thought that was interesting when he talks about that. They've talked about the packaging and the, the challenge of changing to E10, but the actual impact on just the way they use the engine and obviously managing all the airs, et cetera, it's a complex thing. Now, Gary, obviously you've got plenty of experience of running engines in uh, Grand Prix cars, but obviously never the, this spec of hybrid engine. But that interaction between what you might say the car dynamics and the way the engine's used, is that a kind of big deal in terms of how you need the drivability to work? How complicated is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think it's a little bit easier than it was in the past in its own little way because you do have the the um, torque available from the the, the errors. You know, that's a that's a, you know basically like a light switch if you want it to be. You can have a hundred and sixty horsepower just bang with uh, just a flick of a switch as such. Um, so whenever you had normally normally aspirated engines and and had to get a, a sort of a, a torque curve out of them, it was very very difficult because you. You know, you get peaky engines, you get engines that were smooth. Smooth engines never really had the ultimate power. Peaky engines did, but you couldn't use them. So you were always fighting that little battle of throttle maps and 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 trying to get the best out of the engine and also save the rear tires and give the driver a, a, an operating window. And that's in those days, that's where traction control really came in. If you had traction control that worked well, you know, you just plant throttle and let, let it all happen for you. Um, and as soon as you get any wheel spin, um, it, it compensated for it. So, you know, peaky, peaky power curves didn't really matter. But whenever that was banned, it really became tough. Now you've got this engine that's developing, what is it, you know, nigh on 800 horsepower, let's say, the, the turbocharged engine. Um, and then on top of that, you've got 160 horsepower worth of electrical torque that you can feed into it at any point in time you want to. So you can smooth out holes and bits and pieces in the, in the power curve. Um, and, and also, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's a torque map now. It's not really a throttle map. So you can map the torque at the rear tire to a throttle position. Um, so the driver has a progressive throttle, I suppose you might call it, allowing him to, to work the rear tires to their maximum all the time. And that's why a good driver can look after his rear tires, but still go quick. Um, some people can go quick but not look after the rear tires. Some people can't go quick and not look after the rear tires. So it's um I, I think with all the stuff you've got now and if you, all the tools that you have now to optimize that, it's actually a little bit easier. Nothing's easy though, because some you know it's competition. Everybody's trying to do the best out of it they can. So it is it is difficult in that nature. I think the the E ten fuel has meant that people have to sort of work on the combustion chambers of the engine a little bit more to get the performance out of that fuel because it's like when we went from chemical fuels in the early 90s i suppose you might call it to, to fossil fuels as such i mean the burn rate was just so much slower uh, and that's the big thing it just you had at that point in time the engine rpms had gone up so you had big bore short stroke engines because you wanted the rpm with the chemical fuel you could burn it across the all of the top of the piston um instantly as such so you could increase the rpm but then whenever we went to normal fuels the fuel wouldn't burn. It just, you know, it was coming out of the exhaust pipe. It was liquid, really, to be honest. It just couldn't burn that, that fast. So the RPM had to come back down again. And then the engine engine designers found solutions to having smaller bore, longer stroke, and still high revving. And that, that then brought it all back again. That's when we got up to the 18s and 20,000 engine RPMs. So anything you do to the fuel to degrade the fuel means that you just need to end up um, looking at the combustion to try and make it work better. 
Yeah, well, and Hull Thomas also said that's going to be a big thing for them in the early run and getting on top of doing all those things. And even though they've done endless amounts of simulation with all the tools they have, it's still a little bit of an unknown area to be worked on. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. Aramco continuously pushed the limits of engineering. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and drive ongoing human-led progress. Aramco, powered by Howe. Well, Mark, we do have to address the Lewis Hamilton issue, so we just have to turn away from the car for a moment. We've talked about the FIA's recent moves, including removing Michael Massey from the race director role in our recent podcast. But what did Hamilton say about his whole thought process over the winter? There were rumours he'd walk away. And do you think as far as he and Mercedes are concerned, Abu Dhabi 2021 is now done and dusted and and put to bed? It's put to bed, but I think... um... When he when he says I never said I was going to retire, I think the the emphasis is very much on the word said, and because everything else everything else he said subsequently suggests that he really did. Um, how would you put it? He said something like, um, "Yeah, my my faith in the the system was um, was damaged or something like that," and it did it did make him pause to think. Now. Um, how seriously he was thinking, I, I don't want to come back, or how long he was thinking that, we don't, we don't know. Um, but uh, he he certainly has the, uh, he's given the impression of someone that's uh, extremely motivated and um, maybe even more motivated than he would have been uh, had things not played out the way they did in Abu Dhabi. And he said something like, um, you know, if, if you thought it was impressive, um, if you thought Brazil was impressive, wait till you see wait till you see what's coming. So he's definitely in a feisty frame of mind to start the season. So I don't think there's, there's any question of um, of him lacking motivation as a result of what happened. Yeah, it sounds like he made a big effort to completely disconnect from F1 for that period, perhaps even more so than he normally would. And then apparently when he rocked back up at the factory, was it last week or something, they did some social media stuff when he was there. Might have been at the start of this week, but then he was engaged and, and ready to go. So I think probably he knew how important it was to take that time. And of course, we've talked on a previous podcast about the, the kind of looming threat of his possible retirement. So I think we have to say it was definitely being used as part of the bargaining process as well. So they did need to see the right moves being uh, being made. I, I I sort of look at it slightly different from you two, really. I, I look at it a bit strangely in the fact that, you know, obviously after the last race, the last year he went away and... and um, recovered from the situation which is all fine but the seeds being laid that he um was thinking about retirement whether he laid them or whether somebody else laid them it doesn't really matter but that seed's been laid um so it, it can it can come back now um with all the enthusiasm in the world jump in the car it doesn't do what he wants it to do or what it needs to do to be a winning car and he can just jump out and say oh, i haven't got my mojo back so you know I am going to go off and and, to, and and do something different, become a film star. So, you know, he's opened the door for something that could happen. Oh, and my dog at it again. My dog loves chasing leaves and it's really windy here. So <laughs> just go berserk today. I mean, this is windy. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I look at it, it could be, you know, it could still happen, to be honest. I don't think it will because I think the car will be good, but it's just 
the doors open to do something and it doesn't have to be I'm retiring um, because the car's not going to be as good as I want it to be. It's because I, I've lost my mojo. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. It Once you kind of open that door to that idea, it can maybe uh, change things. So, yeah, who knows? If the Mercedes goes as well as it looks, then probably it'll work nicely and uh, and that enthusiasm will carry over. But, yeah, obviously he's closer to the end of his career than the start, so that's going to be... I, I think Lewis Hamilton and the word retirement are going to continue to knock around on a pretty regular basis until it finally does come to, uh, to an end eventually, his uh, glorious F1 career. But, yeah, going for the eighth this year. But... Gary, just looking at Mercedes in general, the car is the product of the way they tackle the rule changes. They've done well with rule changes before the wider high downforce cars in 2017 is the notable one. Yes, last year there were those aero tweaks, but it was a carryover car, so they were kind of boxed into that low rake approach. But there's also the cost cap, the aero testing restrictions that do hit Mercedes pretty hard. So how big a test do you think this, this is for them? Well, it's 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 they've got to learn to live with that hit because that hit is is as you say it's probably biggest for Mercedes of anybody. Um, other teams that are being pretty competitive have been living for a long time with the same sort of um, cost spend, I suppose you might call it, as um, as what Mercedes is going to have to live with now. So this is their first time. Mercedes, Red Bull, and Ferrari um, are going to get hit. The rest of the teams, to be honest. Um, 145, $140 million plus drivers plus 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 is is still a pretty exciting budget for a lot of these guys. But all you can do is that. And, and I hope that I hope that they don't find a way around it that makes the cost cap thing non-existent in the way that they can, you know, have so many companies doing bits and pieces um, that help the Formula One thing but are outside of the Formula One thing. And I think whenever we look at it, with Toto Wolff on in the presentation, he was saying that you know Mercedes Formula One consists of something like two thousand people. Now I know a big a big percentage of that is is the people that build the engines, and that's not part of the cost cap. And they do build engines for other people as well. So where is that where is that line? Where do you draw that line? You know who who does the 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 installation the the, the, the cooling installation, for example? Does, does the engine people do that now because they can? Um, and supply everything to the to the chassis manufacturer. So supply all the design, all the details, all the research for it. There's, a, there's just so many areas between those two that gets cloudy, or gets grey. That I I don't know how you how you manage it and control it because you know for other teams, the smaller teams that are just having the engine from an engine manufacturer, they don't really get that service. They don't really get that backup as such. They just they they have a rental cost for the for the power unit. And that's it. Um, so I still think, it's the, the, although the budget cap is there, it's it's just so grey how you monitor it and manage it. Yeah, and it has to be said that Toto Wolf talked a lot about the cost cap, didn't he, Mark, and the impact of that and the the ATR aero testing rules. So they're obviously very conscious of everything that's been going on, and yeah, cost cap wise, they'll have done everything they can to maximise what they're spending. That's that's part of the game now as well to to spend what you can within it, but it. It has changed the game for Mercedes, hasn't it? It has, and as they, well, let's assume they continue to be successful, it gets more difficult the more successful you are because that gap is is set to widen in, in, in the seasons as they go on in terms of how, you know, how much less wind tunnel time and CFD um, capacity you can use. So I, it's been designed as a, as a way to stop 
like a long-term domination of one team. And it'll be interesting to monitor that how, you know, as we go on, when we start hearing the Red Bull teams and the Mercedes teams saying, oh, we, we, we can't do what we want because, you know, we haven't got enough time in the tunnel. When, once we start hearing that, and it'll be interesting if we start hearing it this time this this year, then you know the, the, that that regulation is having an effect. Yeah, I guess it'll be putting them in the position some of the smaller teams have been in the past. It was interesting. James Key at the McLaren launch said that they have to be quite strategic with how they deploy developments and upgrades and the decision making. He said he's quite comfortable with that because he's got loads of experience from Toro Rosso, Sauber, Force India back in the day. So that that's going to be interesting to see. Do you think we'll, we will see quite a different approach in terms of the developments and how they strategize and the choices made? And of course, if somebody gets it badly wrong, that's when you're really in trouble because you need to do new development avenues potentially to dig yourself out of the hole. Well, uh, yes, I think it's it's very true. I mean, wind tunnel time uh, was getting to the point where it was 24 hours a day. People were even building two wind tunnels. So, you know, that was a bit over the top. But the, the bit that I sort of worry about a little is that I always find with, with aerodynamic parts, the more research you can do on them, um, the more detail you can find or the, or the more understanding you can have of it, uh, and the more chance there is of actually working when you get to the circuit. Now, if you've got a car straight ahead in the wind tunnel and you fiddle about with front wing input, whatever, you know, any part on the car to get more downforce, less downforce, more efficient or whatever, that's fine, that's okay. But, you know, when the driver arrives at the corner, stands on the brake pedal, turns the steering wheel, gets back on the throttle, straightens up the steering wheel and disappears down the next straight, None of that stuff that happens there means that the car is steady state. It's always on the move, one way or another, whether it's steering angle, ride height change, a yaw, um, roll, all all of that. Now, the first things that will happen is those are the things you'll drop research on because they are not productive to the numbers that are given, you know, making the car look better. They are they are they are very productive to what gives the driver the confidence to drive the car faster. But what do you drop? You know, that, that's what you have to do. You have to drop something out of the equation. And that means there could be a lot more stuff made that actually goes in the bin. My my theory on the big skip out the back of the factory. You know, you can you can very easily put in regulations to control stuff that actually ends up being more uh, more uh, costly. More costly. Um, so they need to be very careful in that. And I think we need to see a little bit of time and open open meetings, open talks between the teams and the FIA and F1 to sort of see what is the right solution for this because the last thing you need is people not to be able to design their way out of a hole because we want everybody to be competitive. Um, so it's 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 just it's very easy to, to sit down at a desk and come up with a solution, but that solution in the end actually hurts everybody. Um, so I want to see the, the cars all competitive. I want to see opportunity there. Yes, knocking Mercedes back a bit, is one thing, giving the other teams more opportunity is is a good thing. But will the other teams actually be able to take that opportunity and make it work for them more than will Mercedes be able to still build a good car with less wind tunnel time? I think they are a group of people intelligent enough to understand they have to work more efficiently to achieve the same result. But the smaller teams haven't got that manpower and, and, and understanding. That's why they're a smaller team. So... Sometimes you can give them more time, but they can't use it. It's the same as saying the budget's $140 million, but for maybe a team like Haas or for, uh, for some of the teams at the back, $140 million is above the budget they're going to be able to spend. So 
you have to sort of hit, hit where it hurts uh, at the big teams if you want to close the grid up a bit. Yeah, we talked about that with Aston Martin as well, who said they won't necessarily be right on the maximum of the cost cap, despite presumably having that that money available. Yeah, so it's, it's difficult. You know, that's, that's a lot of money to raise. Uh, you know, Aston Martin, I'm sure the money's there if they can have the motivation to, to, to spend it, because Lawrence Stroll, I think, does have that money or ability to bring in some of the sponsorship. But it's, it's, it's some of the other little teams, like Toro Rosso, or uh, Alpha Tori as it is now, sorry. You know, I know they're a sidekick of Red Bull, and I know Red Bull will finance it, but... They're they're not like that, you know. They're they've got a certain budget and they're standing on their own two feet and they're trying to do their own thing, and they're controlling it because of manpower. And manpower then means you don't have all these ideas coming in. So there's teams that 140 million dollars would be just absolutely a dream budget, um, and there's other teams where they'll have to cut back dramatically. And it's it's about doing that efficiently, as I say. It's going to be a good test of those set of rules. How. Things take shape over the course of the year and what people are saying when they start hitting against those ceilings in terms of what they can do. Uh, Mark, just coming back round to the car, are there any other elements of that that caught your attention or are you just generally relatively impressed as far as you can be by a by a car that you haven't got a stopwatch on? Yeah, I mean, the, only, the, the most distinctive thing that we haven't really talked about, I just thought was the um, the width of the channels down the, down the side that they because the side pods are so narrow... Um, they, they, they clearly got more volume going down that little channel at each, each side of them than than any other car that we've seen so far. It's, I thought that was quite distinctive. Yeah, I think uh, that area obviously is very distinctive. But the, you know, the rear suspension is a probably different from last year, but it's still a derivative of it. I'd say, you know, obviously it's it's um, pull rod operated, um, simple top wishbone, and then the the bottom wishbone is not quite so simple with a. The uh, leading the the leading leg, um, well back and just in front of the drive shaft. So, you know, it's it's a different. The rear end's different in these cars now over the last um, few years because of the the um, electronic braking system in the back of the car. You know, whenever you've got a caliper braking in the back of the car, which they still have, but to a much lesser degree, you put torque into the rear upright. So the the wishbones are seeing the torque of the of the brake caliper in the upright assembly itself. And obviously then the the contact patch is putting load into the the axle, which is distributed across both wishbones. Um but with less less caliper braking and more electronic braking, the, the the torque in the upright reduces. So the loads in the rear suspension will get quite different. Um so I think people are taking advantage of that now and trying to optimize the, the rear end knowledge to suit the new load path that the that the, the braking gives it. Um, but it's you know it's all about trying to get that gap inside the rear tire to the bodywork as big as possible, get as much airflow through there. And as I say, the one thing that does stand out a little bit is obviously it's a different style of rear wing to what we've really seen so far. Most of the other rear rear wings we saw was a a sort of V concept with a deep deep um, in the middle and and tapering off to the outsides. And I was just I was thinking about this on the way as to how you get more downforce out of something like this, because obviously it's easy enough to say, okay, this W shape or maximum sort of wing uh, angle all the way across will be will be best for that. But you get a lot more spillage because you've got no fences on the side of the wing to keep the air, air on top of it, which gives you a positive pressure on top. And then that positive pressure helps a low pressure underneath it. But you don't have that now. So you get spillage over the top of this end. So I'm just wondering if you go to, if you go to Monza with your low downforce wing, does it mean that the, the middle part of it will be as high as possible 
dropping off at the sides, allowing more spillage around the side of the car uh, for a low downforce setup. Um, and also just then the reverse of that for a high downforce setup where the middle is as, is as deep as possible and the sides actually act as something like a bit of an end plate. So rear wing philosophy and design will be something that's that's going to take a lot of uh, a lot more understanding, I think. And a lot we'll see a lot of revisions in that area. Um, but they've got a nice single mount in the middle, developing into the DRS actuator. Um, if you like a DRS actuator, it's pretty neat. Uh, so I think rear wing wise, we'll be keeping an eye on things quite a lot to see what people see as solutions to high downforce and low down, low downforce. Because uh, my my book, I don't see that there'll be as big a window as you you would have had last year or the year before in in that, that range. And with that, then. Uh, it's drag as well. You won't be able to change the drag so much because you won't be able to change the downforce of the rear wing as much. Yeah, and obviously we can't see anything of the diffuser, which we've not really seen on any car, certainly the outside rear of it. So that's something for us to have a look at in testing. So Gary, are we now at final verdict time? Generally seems like a thumbs up from you. Yeah, it seems like a thumbs up. I think the whole the overall concept, the overall package, the overall vision is is pretty decent. Everything's there and in its right place. There's a few little details, as I said earlier, that I think could uh, will ignite some thought pattern at Mercedes to try and see if it uh, if they can adapt or if it does make any enough difference to justify the spend to to incorporate it into your car. Um, not saying that every car needs the same thing, but these cars have got closer to that than we had in the past because these cars are so um, prescriptive that it's it's all really um, going to be about finding the right solution, and then for sure. As time goes by, everybody will try and, try and follow that solution. Whereas in the past, the cars had such vastly different areas on them, like the barge boards, that all work differently. But they work the same, but they all work differently. You couldn't just take a barge board of one car and put it in the other one. But this sort of thing will be a little bit less on, the, on these cars. Yeah, they are a little bit more modular, as it were. So there's going to be a little bit of quick copying going on early in the year as well. So, Mark, I guess it would be a surprise if, Mercedes wasn't at the front even before we saw the car the likelihood was they were going to be strong we've talked about some of the pitfalls but have you seen or heard anything today that makes you think that Mercedes there's any reason why they wouldn't be right up there fighting for wins straight out of the box oh no I'm just I'm just keeping myself in a state of suspense and surprise I, I'm just um I'm liking all the cars at the minute and then uh, seeing seeing how they go when <laughs> when the time comes I've never been able to keep my opinion away from it, um, right or wrong. I mean, you know, we, we 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 try to see what we see, and you know, being from the position I was in the past, you had to be, have that vision to try and see where you're trying to get to, and um, that's still there. You know, if it's in your mind, it's still there. You still look at that with that that philosophy of how does the overall airflow around the car get to each other and help each other. Um, so you just keep on, you just keep on thinking about it. So. I'm sorry if I upset a few people about my comments now and again, but it's it's from the heart. <laughs> a habit of a lifetime. But yeah, ultimately, everything we say, all we've done is seen the cars. So we, haven't, we haven't even seen them moving. So it's all heavily caveated with this is just based on the, the limited information we've got. And that's the great thing about pre-season, that the information gradually builds through the launches and through pre-season testing. And then still, 
you get to the first race and there's still lots of unanswered questions, but you just keep refining that model as the year goes on. Thanks very much, Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there, including Gary's in-depth analysis of the car, and that includes that illustration that really highlights the details in the front of the floor and the front of the Venturis. Check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. Loads of videos analysing the latest cars to take a look at there. We do now have a brief pause for breath for the weekend, but the next launch will be on Monday with Alpine. So join us then for everything you need to know about the new Alpine. Thanks for listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series.